boats with uh, refugees that come from there. But the, so just the Myanmar government has traditionally been very hostile to them. And the reason I bring that up is even though Christianity is acceptable there now, it's still very difficult to come in. So when I went over there, I wasn't allowed to come in on a missions visa or anything like that. I had to come over as a tourist. Uh, as a tourist, I wasn't allowed to do any sort, uh, on my visa, I wasn't allowed to do any sort of evangelism. The area that we were actually working in um, a year ago, I wouldn't have even allowed to be stay, to stay in. It was closed to all foreigners. They had just opened it up to where we could actually stay and work in that area. And even though the mission that we were working at, and we were training indigenous pastors and uh, missionaries that are going into these villages, um, that was sanctioned by the government. They uh, were very skeptical about what my team was doing there, and they were actually monitoring us. I don't. I, I think it might have been mentioned here a couple weeks ago while we were in the training, but the police were actually monitoring everything we were doing. They were checking in on us a couple times a day. So it's definitely a people group that I would appreciate you guys uh, continuing to lift up in prayer because even though, like I said, there are some, uh, there is some Christian presence there now, um, by and large, it is very difficult and most people are very close to the gospel. Um, and so, I, I wanted to share a little bit more about that, but before we get into that, I want to talk kind of what I mentioned about Ecclesiastes, and I was being a little tongue-in-cheek with the sunny optimism, but it's true. As we read through Ecclesiastes, it's very, very difficult to parse out exactly where the preacher or the teacher is going with it. At times, you can definitely see his faith and trust in God, but then at other times, it, it's really questionable of what he sees happening. Um, and this passage is gonna be no, no different. So do we, does anybody remember the word, I know Chris has brought it up a couple times that they use for meaningless? Hevel, yes, it is hevel. There is a lot of hevel going on in this passage that we're gonna learn today. Um, and, but what I think that is, is even though it comes across as the preachers being very cynical or jaded or even really questioning God, he's living in a time, and I know it's been brought up before, but if you think of our true story of the six symbols, he's living in a time of the promise. So he is fully aware. Now, whether this was King Solomon or someone much closer to the birth of Jesus, they would have been fully aware of the original creation story. They would have known how the earth was designed. They would have known the beauty and the place that humanity was put as the pinnacle of creation, as to carry God's honor, his authority, and really to be a mirror of his glory into creation. But the preacher is living in a paradox because while that's the case, he's living in a fallen world and he sees anything but that. And so what we really read in here is watching him wrestle through the paradox of God placing humanity as the focal point of glory within creation and seeing even their people, even God's chosen people, forsake their identity to be a light to the nations and to fail to be a blessing to all people on earth, even though they had been blessed by God. So that's, uh, that's where we jump in today with Ecclesiastes. So I want you to keep that 
in mind. So the word Hevel, and then I give you another one, and that's paradox, because we're going to see a lot of that throughout. The other thing that we've seen up into here is the preacher's his focus on wisdom. He's gone back again and again to wisdom. He's tried to find it. He's tried to interpret the world through this wisdom. And that's what he's looking for. And we're going to continue to see him looking through that in the passage. But we'll see even the paradox start to wear away on him in that. So where we jump in, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1. And so we're picking right up from where Chris left off last week. And in fact, this passage is really designed as a bridge. It connects both to what Chris was talking about. If you remember, he closed with the, the, this idea of humanity being created upright by God, but turning away from that in their evil ways. So we think about the chosen people of God forsaking their identity as being a light to the nations. And so that's kind of where we're at right now and here. So we pick up in 8.1 and it says, who is like the wise? And who knows an interpretation of the thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So I wanna tell you guys, we're gonna be going through a lot today. And so we're going to be going a mile long and we're going about an inch deep into the text. I really encourage you guys as we go through this to go through this on your own and also in your MCs, really wrap around this text and dig into it because I'm not going to be able to parse out for you today like even a, just a tiny bit of the richness that's in here. And so that being said, really what I want you to focus on in those couple verses is this idea of wisdom. Again, this is what the preacher's talking about. This is what, this is, he sees if there's any hope getting out of this paradox, it's gonna be discovered through this wisdom. Wisdom that's given by God, but wisdom nonetheless. And so as we've seen it up to here, he's still going through that. But then we pick up in verse two, and it kind of seems to shift gears pretty, pretty quickly. So picking up in verse two, I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So, if you were like me at all the first time you read that, you're like, who's this king? Where did he come from? Like, we literally haven't been talking about a king at all, and then bam, here he is. And not only that, but we're talking about God's oath to him and us following him completely. So, with that question, it really drove me, I should probably do a little bit more research on what's going on here. Um, and so in that, I also found, as, you're, as you've seen, I'm, you, I'm teaching from the ESV currently, but I'm gonna switch back between the ESV and the NIV because as I started to dig more into this passage, I found that some of the difficulties in understanding this is that the original Hebrew is very enigmatic and, and somewhat ambiguous, although I don't think it's, it's that the Hebrew is ambiguous, it's that our ability to understand what it was or to be able to place it in the context is not as good as it would have been in the time of the preacher. Um, 
so that being said, when I looked into this, it looked more, instead of talking about a particular king, even, you know, some of these, it seems that he's talking about Solomon as the king. But in this passage, it, it would seem more like he's leaning towards the idea of what Paul is exhorting the Romans in um, chapter 13, where he talks about authority. And he talks about all people that are in authority have been given that authority by God, that ultimately all authority on earth is God's and it's God-given. And that we, as God's people, are to submit ourselves under the authority that has been placed above us, knowing that ultimately when we do that, we're submitting ourselves to God. But just like Paul knew, and the writer indicates as well, this isn't necessarily a hard and fast rule. Like you'd see at the end, um, right there in verse five at the end, it says, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. And I think what he's telling us there is yes, like you won't know evil when you submit yourself to authority because you're ultimately submitting yourself to God's authority. But in that, and we're gonna see a little bit later, Human authority, even given by God, is often flawed by the sinfulness of humans' hearts. And so there are many times that we're not going to, we're going to advocate for another way even to that authority. And so some of the things that I could think of that the preacher would have been even really well, um, really well acquainted with would be uh, Jonathan and his father Saul. When Saul was trying to um, hunt down and kill David, Jonathan first interceded for David and actually got Saul to relent for a time. And then when Saul began again to pursue David, had decided that he was in fact going to kill David, Jonathan went behind Saul and actually aided David in fleeing Jerusalem. And so that was a time where he was stepping out of the authority. Another, another example would be um, the prophet Nathan going and uh, condemning David's actions when he had sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. So those are all things that we wanna, that the preacher is bringing out, but I think there's something a lot deeper that I want you to be able to focus on. But like I said, it pains me to fly through these verses so quickly without bringing out a li- at least a little bit of the richness that's in here. So that being said, we pick up again in verse six. And it says, for there's a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. And something that I really appreciated here um, that I think would be a better way that the NIV says it in verse six is that a person may be weighed down by misery. So there again, that starts to bring us back to the preacher's sunny side and his optimism. But what he's really doing here is he's tying us back to what he just said about the king. Although it seems like all of the verses are really disconnected, he's completing for us 
a thought. It's a series of a series of sayings that are all coming together for one thing. And so what he's telling us is that even though there are these people that God's given authority over us, they still don't have ultimate power. Who can tell us? The, like no one can tell us what the future will hold. Even even these kings, even in all of their authority, don't have ultimate power. And then he goes into these four sayings. And the reason I like the ESV is because it actually says who can contain the spirit. And that doesn't even do justice. Like the picture of this in the Hebrew is actually like a caged animal or a pen that someone is trying to contain something. And what they're saying is none of us have that ability. In our own spirit, we don't have the ability to retain that. And he goes further to say that nobody has the ability to stave off death. Like we can't hold on to our spirit and when God calls our time, our spirit will be removed from us and we will die. And then the weird part of this, the, the part that starts to get tricky is no one's discharged from war. And you're like, well, I get spirit and I get death, but where's he going with war? And so the, the thing about this is it's not this standalone verse where he's talking about being discharged from war, but he's actually using kind of a metaphor to tell us that war, it's another picture of death. And he's saying that no one will be released from that, that we all are going to go into this battle with death and that we all are ultimately going to succumb to its power. And that's why... Um, Finally, he says that wickedness, that nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. And actually, what he was saying there is not only that people's wicked deeds, like their complete rejection of God, that's not going to bring back or not going to get them, the, not going to give them the ability to retain their spirit, not going to give them the ability to fight off death, but implicitly through that passage, he's also saying that the righteous, the good, are under the same weight. They have the same fate. They're not going to be able to stave off death. And then at the very end, he brings back that idea of the king and authority. And he said that this king that's been placed over you, the authority figure, so we don't, we don't have kings anymore, but we still have government officials that's very prevalent right now as we're coming up to an election. Um, we have some government officials, uh, probably the majority of government officials that we don't necessarily agree with all of their actions, and yet we're called to submit to their authority, ultimately knowing that God has a purpose and a plan in raising them up but they aren't the ultimate authority. And ultimately, in the end, much hurt comes from them having power over us. And that's what that last verse is saying, that these people that we are called to submit to by God still ultimately many times are going to hurt us and hurt themselves in the process through the wicked deeds that are brought out through it. And in that, you start to see this preacher's like his heart and his desire for something more. And I think that's the beauty of where we sit in the story is because where all he saw were flawed human kings, we get to know the true king. Where he saw kings that operated under limited authority, we know a king that operates under all authority, that has all authority. 
So where he knew flawed kings, we know the perfect king. And you'll start to see just the, the hurt from the lack of this knowledge that the preacher has when we step into the next verse. So picking back up in verse 10, he says, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, this is hevel. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So uh, there's a couple things in this passage that I want you to pick out because first you see the preacher just crying out against this paradox. And honestly, like the language in here, it starts to be really complicated to where it's hard to even understand what he's saying. So if you go back up to verse 10, um, he says, then I saw the wicked buried They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. So for me, when I first read that, like I could tell there's an issue, but after really praying through and looking at it, I started to grasp what he's wrestling with and what what is paining him. So what he's saying is he's seeing these people that he's known to be evil, these people that he's observed the wickedness in their lives. Not only has he observed it, but he's observed their wickedness as they went in and out of the holy city. They were performing these wicked, evil deeds within Jerusalem. And so that's not the paradox. The paradox is after these people were died, they were, after they died, they were given the honor of a burial, which was something that was really, really key in those times. Like it was, if you weren't given the honor of a burial, like it was because you were a really evil person. And that's what he's saying about these people. He said, they didn't deserve to be buried, but they were. And not only were they buried, but then they were, people were praised them in the very place that they did their wickedness. Like, so if you picture this, Jerusalem is just the epicenter of holiness for the Israelites. And he's seen people just trashing it, being completely against God, sinning in this very place where God's holiness should abound. And then when they passed on, not only were they honored, but they were honored in the very place that they had like just completely tainted with their evilness. And so that is the paradox that the preacher is wrestling with. But the other thing that I want you to pick up on, going down now back to verse 12, is the preacher introduces a paradox of his own, which I missed the first couple times I read it, but as I was going through, I wanted to figure out what he meant because he says that the sinner does evil a hundred times and he prolongs his life. Yet I know it will be well with those who fear God but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days. So what's he talking about? How is he prolonging his life but not prolonging his days? How is evilness, like how is that evil 
guaranteeing him that he's able to live longer, and yet that very same evil is causing him to not have more days. And so I think what the key that you have to see there is right in the middle of it. So these are bookends to what the preacher says in the middle where he says, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. So we've seen throughout this book that the preacher says he saw, he observed, there are things that he had seen, but now he's saying something a little bit stronger. He says, I know, this isn't just something I think, or this isn't something I'm hypothesizing, but this is something that I know is true. I have faith that even when I see these wicked people being honored, even when I see the wicked prospering in their, this lifetime, that ultimately their days will not be prolonged because there's a future that we don't see here. There's something that happens after death. And I know that the people who fear God will be able to taste the benefits of that. And the people that do wicked will not. And I think it's really important that we hold on to that because unfortunately his like apparent optimism is very short lived. Because as we skip down or as we drop back down into verse 14, the preacher picks up and he says there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. And I'm jumping into the NIV now because I feel like it does a much better job of translating this. So this is what he says. There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Like as Chris Preby would say, this is bubbles. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. So here's the struggle that he's going through. Like he sees this wickedness and he knows there's a promise. He's living in the time of a promise. He knows that God has told them that one day all things will be set right. One day creation will be again what it was in the beginning but that's not what he's seeing here. Like he hears those words and he trusts that God is true to them. But what he sees is actually the exact opposite of that, where evil people on this earth are prospering precisely because of the evil things they do. They benefit to the detriment of those who are righteous. They're trampling on them and the righteous are actually receiving the evil things as a result of that. Like you can picture, so a picture that we would have today is like a slumlord, somebody that has buildings that he reaps massive benefits from the rent while he completely disregards the needs of the tenants and allows them to suffer in abject poverty. Um, an even uh, even stronger example would be some of these, like some of the dictators that we have today. You think about what's going on in North Korea as we're praying for the persecuted church. There are not very many places in this earth that are, are as persecuted for the church right now as North Korea. And honestly, 
not, even the people that aren't believers still are just being crushed under the weight of this evil regime while they are living the benefits, while they're reaping all of the good they can on the backs of these people. And so that's what the preacher's saying he's seeing right now. And he can't make heads or tails of it. Like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the promise. And so he's wondering where God's going with this. And so I think this is the crux of the passage because then he introduces this idea. He's like, there's nothing better under the sun for you to eat and drink and be glad. Because he said, this is the joy that you're gonna get while you toil, like while you labor in much difficulty without seeing much fruit, the best thing for you to do, he says, is to enjoy what blessings God has given you. And I think this, like, this reminded me of uh, verse uh, probably one, it's one that follows right before Ecclesiastes. It's Proverbs 31.6. And in it, it says this, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So if you can't tell, that's not like a, a super like charging message. Like they're, they're basically saying like, this is you, life is fleeting. Your life is meaningless. It's bubbles, it's hevel. And so the best that we can do is to eat, drink, and be glad in the small time that we have as we toil on the earth. And that would be a really, really depressing message if we didn't know that the preacher has a better light in mind and he knows where he's going with this, but he can't help but say exactly what he's seeing on this earth. And so he continues to bring up this paradox as we go into verse 16 when he says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So this is like, I, I think for me, this was the most tragic, especially piggybacking off of the message he just gave when he says that now, even wisdom, even this thing that he's been holding on to, he's like, God has given us wisdom. And if we can't see anything else in this life, wisdom will help us get through. The God-given wisdom will help us get through to the truth of what God is doing here, to how he's going to how he's gonna bring that promise to fruition. And so you, you see here, he says that in my heart to know, I applied my heart to know wisdom and what did I see? I saw that no one, that w we toil, people are toiling. They're not sleeping day or night. They're frustrated because God has given us this promise and yet it's anything but what is going on and it's anything but we can see. There's this paradoxical mystery that I cannot discern. And so he says that even the wise, 
Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He said everyone, even Solomon in all of his wisdom that would be able to understand the words of God, even he, even anyone that claimed to be wise cannot fully know what God's doing. And I think that's where he's struggling. That's what he's saying. He says, I know that it's happening, but there's no way for us right now to discern it. And that is not bringing him a lot of hope which we can see, again, like I said, the place where this preacher is in the story, it's a very, very tough place to be because he knows the promise, but he absolutely does not see how it's gonna be fulfilled. So this is what he said, um, skipping now to chapter nine and picking up in verse one. This is what the, how the preacher continues. So I reflected on, all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean. Sorry. the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. I'm sure that's a phrase that like, comes up in circles a lot with you guys. <laughs> For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So here it is. This is the preacher's final summation of everything that he's been talking about. He says, for those who sin and those who are righteous, for those who will take oaths for God and those who are afraid to take them, for those that do wicked and those that do good, it's really all the same. Nobody knows what they're gonna ha- what's gonna happen. He's saying that as far as he can see in his life, the fruits are just arbitrarily divided. People that do wicked will receive good. People that do good will receive wicked. And so again, like I said, if you weren't aware of the like the bedrock that the preacher was standing on, this would absolutely turn you to believe that he's just completely given up on trying to understand what's going on and he's given up on his faith in what is going on. But that's not the case. And you can actually see that as he comes towards the end where he starts to talk, there's still hope for the living. And why would there still be hope? It it doesn't seem like the picture he's painted of life under the sun, as he says, is very hopeful. But he says that there is hope. 
And it's coming back to what he knows to be true about God. And so again, where he says that it's, uh, life is better, or there's a better, um, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Like, it's a weird phrase. But if you think about it, what he's trying to say is really a dog doesn't have anything on top of a lion. A lion is better all the way across the board, except for one thing. If it's dead and the dog has life, that's the only time that it is better. And so what he's saying is that ultimately, in all of these things that seem meaningless, in all of this hevel, there's one thing that we can hold on to, that while we're still alive, there's still hope. And that hope doesn't fall, obviously, in what we see around us in the world, because all we see is the wicked prospering and the righteous being subjected to pain and toil. So the hope isn't in that. But what the hope is, is in God. And that in a life with God, just as he said before, those who fear God will ultimately do well. And that's the hope in this life. That's the hope for the preacher that he's giving us right now, is that we still have hope as long as we're alive, that we can submit ourselves to God, that we can submit ourselves to his authority. And even, even if like our brothers and sisters in North Korea, in Pakistan, that are subjected to slavery at the hands of evil rulers and that are living a life of pain and toil, just like them, just like us, we have a hope that's beyond this side of death. And that's what he's been trying to bring out this entire time. And so as we, uh, we close down, as we come to the end of this thought of the preachers, this is how he finishes it. He comes back again to that crux that we had talked about earlier. He says, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So that's the, that's the preacher's conclusion. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? <laughs> no, so again, at first glance, it does seem like that. Like he's saying that all of this is meaningless. And so it's almost as if, as if he's bringing this back up to advocate for this almost hedonistic life, this fatalistic life. And if we didn't know his heart, we would probably see that as true. So I wanted to tell you guys a story about when I was over there in Myanmar that didn't have anything to do with the training that I was going through. It was actually after we had finished the training, um, 
I don't know if you guys know anything about like the area of Myanmar. It's not like one of those like common talked about places, but it borders Thailand. So if you can think of any of the pictures of Thailand, that's what Myanmar is like. It's these huge mountains and like really beautiful lowlands and really pretty coastal areas. It's like this tropical area with tons of lush forests. There are these beautiful rivers that roll throughout it, all these streams that cut through these pretty villages that are completely filled with garbage. And there's trash everywhere in the land. And it is such a stark contrast when you're standing in paradise and you see all of these McDonald's wrappers and plastic bottles just littered about. And the reason that is, is because, like I said, this country is 90%, over 90% Buddhist. They have this very fatalistic or escapist mentality. Nature is evil, and the best thing you can do is to escape from it. And so why would you take care of anything if that was the case? What really brought this to light to me was I was standing on the bank of this river after we had finished this training, and this guy on this motorbike comes up with these two huge sacks. I mean, now, it's kind of funny to see this guy on this motorcycle, and he's got these giant sacks on both sides of him. And so I figure it's like rice or something like that. So he pulls up to the edge of the river, and he unloads these sacks, and he walks down to the river. So I'm intrigued. Like, he's got my attention. What's this guy doing? He comes with these two big sacks right to the edge of the river, opens them up, and just dumps trash just dumps big piles of trash right into the river. And not more, this wall, there's a farm right there. And I actually saw this little girl running down to scoop out like water for like cooking and drinking out of this river that this guy's just dumping trash into right upstream from them. And you can see that this is the water that's feeding their farms. They're growing their crops. This is where they're getting their drinking water. This is where they bathe and they're just dumping garbage into it. Because to them, it's hevel. It doesn't matter. It's fleeting and it's meaningless. And so when you start to see what the preacher is saying here, I think that he's honoring that paradox. He knows that there's something different, even though he doesn't know what it is. And that's what he's been trying to tell us all along, is don't look at life the way that these people in Myanmar do, that this is just an evil place that your best hope is to escape from. There's hope in life. But the preacher, just like all of God's chosen people in the promise time, they're having a difficult, difficult view of what God could be doing here. It doesn't make sense. Especially if you take that the preacher is someone that lived closer to the time of Jesus, he would have seen God's chosen people fail in their identity to become a light to the nation. And not only that, to be overtaken, to be conquered by evil, sinful nations for them to rule over them. So it's no small thing when he told the people to respect the authority that was placed above them because if that's the case, that would be really difficult to respect that authority. And this is what God's chosen people see. And they couldn't understand the paradox. And the thing is, the preacher may or may not have seen it, but he was actually setting 
the stage for God's greatest paradox, the ultimate paradox that he was gonna reveal, and that was Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we find someone who is fully human, but yet he's fully God. Here's someone that was born, but he was born to a virgin. Just like every person that has ever lived, Jesus was tempted by Satan. But unlike any other individual that has ever lived, Jesus led a sinless life. Jesus revolutionized the world using 12 unlikely guys who were fishermen, who were peasants, and they were tax collectors. So what the preacher couldn't see, he couldn't see the paradox that God was setting up. And unfortunately, most of God's chosen people couldn't see it either. And that was this, that the preacher's beloved wisdom, that the ultimate wisdom of God would be found in the foolishness of a Roman cross. That the ultimate victory over the evil, over the sin and over the death that the preacher is railing against would actually be found in the defeat of the death of Jesus. That ultimate power, God's power in the universe would be manifest in a peasant baby born in a conquered nation. And that all of the world would see God's glory fully manifested in a bloody and naked savior nailed to a cross. But he didn't stay that way and that is the good news. So if we think of what Paul is telling us, the, alt, the conclusion to the ultimate paradox, what was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews was Jesus hung on a cross. But what was beauty was his victory over that in his resurrection. And unfortunately, like Paul also tells, many people would not come to believe in that and that but we know that our hope lies in that and that if the resurrection isn't true, that of all people, we are the most to be pitied. And yet God, in his ultimate, just in his ultimate beauty, the glory of God was shown in this ultimate paradox that the preacher couldn't figure out. But the good news for us is that we live on the other side of that. We live in an age where we know what redemption looks like. But the other hard part for that is that we carry on that responsibility. That has been where the preacher was placed in a time that he was to understand and to really, to try and parse out the paradox. We're in a place where we've been given the full manifestation of God's plan and his purpose on earth. And now you and I, all of us Missio family, it's our job to walk out of here to be that light to the nations that Israel failed to be. We are blessed to be a blessing. And so what I wanna do, what I wanna take for the rest of our time, um, Crystal's gonna hand out um, some pieces of paper. So these are uh, what we call our blessed grid. 
So BLESS is an acronym that we use. And so if, you're, if you've been here with Missio uh, with us for a while, you'll be, uh, you'll be, you should be pretty familiar with this. But this is something that we help to understand how we are to be a blessing with what we've been blessed by God. And it's not only how we bless others, but it's also how we bless God in that. And so it's how do we worship God and how do we bless others? So then the second letter for that, the second letter in that acronym is listen. And that's really key that that comes first because before we should ever hear, before we should ever speak to God in prayer, we should hear from him through his word and we should hear from him in prayer. And then with his ability, we go out and we listen to those people that are in our faith family and in the rest of the world, the people that God is calling to himself. And then we come to my favorite one, and that's to eat. God created food. He created abundance of good food. And he created a, for us to eat and enjoy, just like the preacher said. What did he say? He said, eat and drink and be glad. And this wasn't this fatalistic idea. He was saying, take the good blessings of God and enjoy them in this life. But what he didn't see, or at least what he didn't give us and offer us in that text, is exactly what had been commanded to Abraham. And that those blessings aren't for us. We're not just to eat, drink, and be glad for ourselves, but we're to do it to be a light to the nation and to be a blessing for other people. And so as we eat and we drink, we share that with those around us. We share it with our families and our MCs as we gather each week. And we share it with the world when we invite people that don't know the truth of God's goodness and we bring them to our table around a meal so that we can share our lives and we can share ultimate hope with them. And that brings us to our next one where we speak. And so we speak to God in prayer, but we also speak truth to one another, lifting each other up. Just as we're doing today, we exhort one another but we also speak the truth of God's plan and his glory to those that are perishing without it. And finally, another good one, we Sabbath. We rest in everything that God has given us. We rest in him. We rest in his goodness. And we do the same with other people. We rest and we recreate, we celebrate all that God is doing in our lives. So here's what I want you guys to do for the next five minutes or so, I want you guys to get into groups of two, three, or four people, just gather around, and I want you to start to talk about how are you gonna see these things lived out in your life in light of what we've learned today from the preacher and in light of the good news that we have in Jesus Christ, how are we gonna go out and fulfill that commandment to go and be a blessing to others? So go ahead, take a couple minutes and gather up and do that. If you guys don't have time to finish them, which you may not, We'll go ahead and uh, you just take them home and finish them out on your own. I put pens out on all the tables, so if you don't have one, feel free to grab it. But just take a couple minutes and do that. All right, guys. And uh, close us out in prayer. But I really, uh, I really encourage you guys to continue stepping into this and living into this. This is something that we do regularly. It's one of our rhythms here at Missio, but 
I want it to become something that we really focus on, especially as we're going through Ecclesiastes, which can be really hard to understand. And it can, honestly, in a lot of ways, it can start to make us feel a little cynical and jaded about what we're honestly doing here. But I don't, I honestly don't believe that that's the preacher's intent. Like, I think what he's giving us is exactly that. He's honoring the life and the world and the fallenness that he was living in then and that in a lot of ways we still see played out today. And yet he's calling us to a better hope. And so in that, I want each of you guys to be able to be that hope and that light to the communities and the places that you guys are, that you guys find yourselves in, that God has strategically placed you in to speak good news. And Heavenly Father, I do just thank you for that. God, I thank you that you have created life's paradoxes, that you use the weak things of this world to shame the strong, that you use the foolishness to confound the wise. Father, I thank you that you would use people like us who are very broken, who struggle so many times throughout the day, and yet you've called us and you've given us a better name. God, you've called us to be your children and you've called us to go out and to speak the good news of your glory that you have conquered what appears to be a fleeting world and that you have really redeemed it and you are bringing it back under your ultimate authority. And God, you have allowed us to enter into that mission with you. You have allowed us to already take place in your kingdom reality and that you have given us, you have set our sights on that kingdom and you've given us a good word to share with the people that are perishing apart from you. Lord, I pray that that would be the truth for us today, that as we continue to celebrate with each other, as we continue to come to the table and honor you, and as we go out into this world, Lord, that your name would be magnified, that you would be lifted high, that your glory and your honor would be on the tips of each of our tongues, and that all we could do is praise the beauty of who you are. Lord, we do. We love you and we praise you. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.